So, remember the early, I don't know, some of you may be too young, but that children's uh, program that used to be on PBS, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood? Anybody remember that? It's a beautiful day in the neighborhood, right? No, it's not a beautiful day in the neighborhood? Oh, well. It's always a beautiful day when we can worship the Lord. Hey, I want to start the message today by asking you a question. If you only had one minute to tell someone how to help their church be a healthy, vibrant church, what would you tell them? One minute. What would you tell them? What are the issues you would tell them to address? What is it you would say to them in one minute? One minute is about the length of time it takes for us to read this last half of chapter 5 in 1 Thessalonians, that Paul is addressing the church and letting them know these are the things that you can do to make sure the church is healthy and vibrant. And so we've been in the midst of a sermon series through 1 Thessalonians called Finding Hope in a Hopeless World. And we've been talking about how the Bible anchors our confidence not in things like uh, technology or in a government or in a strong economy. And certainly we learned last Sunday not in the Kansas City Chiefs, right? What a bummer a game that was. Our hope is not in those things. Our hope, our confidence is anchored in our relationship with Jesus Christ because Christ has opened the way up for us to know God and because our future is secure with Christ. So we can be confident because of these things. No matter what the future holds, no matter what we experience today, no matter how much the world feels like it's upside down currently, our confidence, our hope is in our relationship with Christ. And Christ said this about the church. He said, you are the light of the world. Let your light shine before others that they may see your good good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. The local church is the hope of the world. The church is designed to be a place where others can find God, to grow in faith, to build meaningful relationships with other people, to be encouraged by genuine love and authentic community. This kind of church doesn't happen easily by accident. It happens only with great intention. Paul lays out a bunch of principles in this last half of this chapter 5 to really talk about how a church can be healthy a church that's healthy that God can use to impact lives and transform people. So we're going to talk about five bricks that I would pull out of this passage that Paul has for the church to be healthy and to be vibrant. So I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We're going to be in the back half of that chapter, starting in verse 5. You can pull your phones up as well. If you want to pull the app up, it's going to have the passage in there as well. And so we're going to look at the first couple of verses. We're just going to kind of pull through the verses, a couple of verses at a time. So we're going to start 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 12. And so the first brick that we can pull out of this passage is our responsibilities toward our leaders. So look at these verses. It says, Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord, and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard and love because of their work. Live in peace with each other. So Paul is talking to the entire congregation here, not just to a few individuals, but all the members. He's talking about their attitude toward their leaders. In some ways, the Thessalonian church is much, isn't much different than the churches today. Here we find in this passage probably a hard a group of, of, of people who work hard in verse 12, we're told. And those men and women sacrifice their energy, they provide their, the resources from their lives to help make church, the church's ministry happen. And so for the word work, Paul uses here has the idea of manual labor, literally of toiling and, and sweat 
And we see in a few minutes there was also a group of people in this church who weren't doing anything. And so there was, uh, you know, a group of people that weren't doing what they should be doing. So the church in Thessalonica was probably like many churches today where, uh, sadly, 20% of the people are doing 80% of the ministry. And those who were working hard in that church probably were feeling a little bit underappreciated. And the rest of the congregation was in some ways taking them for granted. And so Paul further defines this group of people, the workers, as those who were over the Thessalonians. They were spiritual leaders in the church, those who admonished the Thessalonians and also who taught them about God. And it's led some people to identify this group in this passage as the church's pastors or elders. Paul doesn't say in this passage that you're to crown your pastors and your leaders and make them kings or queens or act like they're kings or queens, although I imagine Doug would look really good in a crown. He looks good almost in anything. But really what Paul's saying here is he's saying show them respect. So what does he mean by respect? Well, it means to know someone so well that you appreciate their true worth. So Paul's talking here about a relational kind of respect, in which, which is consistent with verse 13 when he talks about doing this in love. So personally, I don't think these verses are just speaking only to pastors and elders, but to a group that's wider than that. It's describing a core group of men and women in a congregation who are working hard, as the passage says, to make ministry happen. They've proved their calling as leaders by exercising their God-given spiritual gifts as they serve faithfully. And even in our own congregation, it's going to be not only our pastors and our council members, but it's going to be people like um, Bible study leaders, life group leaders, uh, children and youth leaders. It's going to be um, deacons, people who serve on a leadership board, and so forth. And so when these leaders labor in ministry, and when members know them well enough to appreciate what they do, then there's peaceful harmony that takes place in the church. So effective leadership and effective following translates into harmonious relationships. Ineffective leadership and disrespectful following translates into friction, tension, and conflict. And that's a church that really people don't enjoy being a part of. And so the Bible is very clear that churches have a responsibility to cultivate positive relationships with their leaders. Other places in the Bible address the responsibility of leaders to lead with integrity, to be gentle, to teach God's word clearly to those who are in the church and so forth. But the emphasis here in this passage is on the responsibility of followers. Nurturing respectful relationships with leaders requires work. It doesn't just happen effortlessly, okay? Like most significant relationships in our lives, uh, it, it doesn't just naturally stay strong. It requires a lot of forgiveness. It requires a, a clear communication And most of all, Christ-like love when we respect and we honor our leaders. And far too often, I think the church has allowed this this culture or the world's view of anti-authority attitude to seep into the church. And we oftentimes will view leaders with distrust and will fail to appreciate the hard work they do to make sure that ministry is taking place. And so how can you show respect and support to our leaders? By letting them know that you appreciate them. By, by affirming them, by supporting them. The burdens of leadership are many, and often the encouragements are few and far between. Many times leaders don't hear from people unless there's something that they're doing wrong or there's a problem. 
So I'd encourage all of us to respect and to support the leaders who serve so faithfully in our church. And so the first brick that Paul talks about in this passage for a healthy, vibrant church is nurturing respectful relationships with leaders. The second thing he addresses is our responsibility to one another, our ministry responsibility to one another. Look at verses 14 and 15. He says, And we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive, encourage the disheartened, help the weak, be patient with everyone. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. So once again, Paul's using the collective phrase here. He's saying brothers and sister, sisters. He's talking about all in the congregation, not just a few, to show us he's addressing everyone. So the entire congregation is to do these things, to warn those who are idle. The word warn here means to admonish, and it's usually referring to, to cautioning people about disrupt, disruptive or destructive or immoral behavior. Now, not everybody needs admonishing. So Paul describes the group in this church as those who are idle. And the word that's used for idle was originally a military word that was describing someone who was out of formation or who abandoned their post and and what we would call AWOL in our military. And so our English word slacker uh, probably captures the idea of the Greek word idle in this passage. The idle are are the people who are the won't do's in a church. The people who refuse to get involved or when asked decline and they don't, they don't step up and they don't help. They don't participate. So they're, they're not personally contributing to building up the church. And so admonishing the idol means challenging them to get back to their posts, to, to get active, to get involved, to get engaged. And so that's, that's all of us that are, encouraged, are supposed to encourage those to do that. The, the entire congregation is also supposed to be involved in encouraging the timid. So the word for encourage here means to console or to show tenderness. And so the word was often used to give comfort in the face of tragedy or even death. And so the people who need this tender comfort are the timid. And so if the slackers are the won't-dos, the timid are the want-to people. They're the people who want to serve in ministry. They're the ones who want to make a difference, but their lives are characterized by a level of brokenness or they have a low opinion of themselves And they just can't seem to take that next step to get involved or get engaged. And so they're discouraged. They might be brokenhearted. They might be troubled or depressed. And they need tender consolation from the entire congregation. They need people who are going to come alongside them and and encourage them and support them. And so then the church is also told, the whole church, to take responsibility to help the weak. So the word help means here to prop something up that's about ready to collapse or fall down. So the word weak is probably referring mostly to spiritual weakness. So if the idle people are the won't-dos and the timid are the want-tos, the weak are the can't-dos of the church. These are the men and the women who simply aren't spiritually strong enough to function the way that God wants them to. And so we're told to prop them up, to come alongside them and bolster them, to, to build them up, to support them so they won't fail or fall. So we tend to figure that pastors are going to be the ones that are going to take responsibility for the the won't-dos. The deacons and the care team ministers are going to be the ones who are going to take care of the want-tos. The life group leaders are going to be the ones who can take care of the can't-dos. But we need to realize what Paul's saying here is that the ministry of the people is the responsibility of the entire church. 
These, these folks who struggle, they're not, the responsibility isn't to a small subset group or to even the leaders. It's for all of us. So we look at this list, we're encouraged to engage in assisting each one of those folks, no matter where we find them or how we find them. Paul then reminds us, as the church, of three healthy church practices that every church should engage in as we minister to each other, as we support one another. The first practice is to practice patience. So when we spend time discipling someone or we're trying to help an individual, one of the first things we realize is that people generally don't change as quickly as we'd like them to change. Is that right? You know, we just we want them to change. We want to see progress, but it doesn't happen as fast as we think it should. Nevertheless, we're supposed to practice patience with everyone. When people are slow to respond, we tend to get frustrated or discouraged. And the word patience in this passage means long-tempered. It means literally we're supposed to show patience and in, in, in we know we're practicing patience when our fuse is long but our, our irritability is slow. So a little boy was once asked, who made him? And he thought for a minute and he came up with a really astute answer. He said, to tell you the truth, I ain't finished yet. That's so true, right? And that's our response. We're all in process. We all probably fail at times. We all mess up. Let's be patient with one another because we ain't finished yet. God ain't finished with us. Let's give each other a chance to grow into enough space to mature. So how patient should you be with people? Well, probably more patient than you've been. How patient should you be? As patient as God is with you. And that's pretty patient, isn't it? So that's the first one. The second one is to refuse to retaliate. So look at the first part of verse 15. It says, make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong. Paul is reiterating the teaching about, from Jesus about non-retaliation, that no matter what's done to us, the follower of Jesus has no excuse to retaliate or to get revenge. Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 5. He said, you have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth, But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If somebody strikes you on the right cheek, then offer them the other cheek. Let's bring this revolutionary teaching closer to home. There are people in the church, in this church, who are going to hurt you probably. In fact, there are probably already people who have done that. So what do you do? How do you respond when that happens? Well, Jesus says in another part in Matthew chapter 18, he says that we're supposed to go meet with that person and to seek reconciliation with them. And whatever we're supposed to do, and however they respond, we're not supposed to retaliate. It's only going to eat you up, and it usually you get back what you do in that kind of a situation. So, you know, refusing to retaliate also means that there's no gossip. There's no passive-aggressive behavior. Those are active forms of retaliation. Now, that's a whole other sermon, so we'll let Doug preach that at another time. But that's That's the kind of thing that that Paul's saying is that healthy churches don't engage in that kind of behavior. The third practice is cultivating kindness. So we're supposed to practice patience, refuse to retaliate, but we're supposed to do more than not just seek revenge, but always, he he goes on, he says, but always try to be kind to each other and to everyone else. And so putting on what is good is basic to our ability to overcome what is evil. So the word always in this verse is emphatic. Our tendency is to look for loopholes or to justify reasons why we don't have to be kind to that person. 
And the word try in this passage means to chase after or to pursue. So it's a really active, aggressive, in a positive way, to show kindness, even if somebody does something that's not good to us. Paul says it in a similar way in Romans chapter 14, verse 19. He says this, he says, Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. We're to cultivate kindness with each other. And we're also, in this verse, told to cultivate kindness with those outside the church, especially those that even bother us or make life difficult. We're supposed to show them kindness. In other words, we should say, in spite of what you've done to me, I'm going to do everything I can to do what is good for you. Now, that's countercultural, isn't it? That's, that's the way that Jesus wants his church to be. So these two verses describe our ministry for one another, with one another. So we, we build a healthy church by serving one another in these ways. The third thing that, that Paul talks about in this passage is keeping our focus on God. He's encouraging the church, don't lose your focus. Keep your focus on God. And he says it this way. He says, rejoice always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. So we build a healthy church by enthusiastically embracing God's will in our circumstances. I don't know about you, but I don't always feel joyful in my life. I don't always want to pray. I don't always even know what to pray. And for sure I know, confession, that I have not always been thankful in every circumstance. But the beauty of these commands is, is they're not just given to each one of us individually, but these commands are given to the whole church. This is something that we're called to do together, to do for each other. These commands are to the church, all of us. These commands are worship. This is what the church does when we gather, right? We joyfully worship God. We pray for each other. We give thanks in all circumstances. And there are times I don't feel like worshiping. Can a pastor say that? There are times I don't feel like worshiping. There are times that I don't feel like going to my life group because maybe it's been a really hard day. But without fault, you know, whenever my experience is, whenever I go obediently, even when I'm feeling down or discouraged, without fail, my spirit is lifted by someone else's joy or by someone else's prayers or by someone else being giving thanks or being thankful for God in whatever circumstance they find themselves in. And so when we do these things faithfully in Christian community, God gives us back in those moments of discouragement or despair, God gives us back hope in the Lord. And we get that from participating with other brothers and sisters when we rejoice always, pray continually, and give thanks in all circumstances. So this is the kind of enthusiastic embrace of God's purpose for our lives that builds a strong sense of community. The fourth thing that Paul kind of gets to in this passage about being healthy as a church is an openness to the Holy Spirit's leadership in the church. He looks at, look at verses 19 through 22. He says, Do not quench the Spirit. Do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all. Hold on to what is good. Reject every kind of evil. So the command is to not quench this Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God in Scripture often is pictured as being fire. And so someone in this congregation, in in Thessalonians, they were tempted to spray the fire hose on God's Spirit and what God's Spirit was doing in that church. 
So God, Paul commands us to not douse the Spirit's fire, to not become so organized or structured that the work of the Spirit is quenched. So the specific way the Thessalonians were quenching God's Spirit was by disregarding prophecy. Now, prophecy in the New Testament is when the Holy Spirit gives a person a supernatural insight into God's will. And the prophet in the New Testament didn't so much foretell the future as much as he or she had a supernatural insight into the presence of what God wanted to do. So verse 20 says, do not treat prophecies with contempt. Do not discount. He's telling us, do not discount what God may say to us just because he uses an imperfect person to communicate his word to you. So just an example of this. A few years ago, uh, during the first service, uh, our worship ran long. Uh, my message ran a little long, as sometimes it does. And I had meant to do an invitation at the end of the message, but I was looking at the clock going, there is no way I should do the invitation. We've got to get done so we can get on to the next service. And so I wrapped everything up, and as I was walking off the stage, I just really felt like the Spirit was impressing on me that he that God wanted me to do that invitation, even if it meant we ran long in the next two services. And as I'm literally walking down the steps, a woman comes up to me and says, Wes, great message. She said, oh, so good. She goes, but, you know, this rarely happens to me, but she goes, I just feel like God's telling me to share with you that I think you ought to give an invitation at the end of the message in the next two services. I took that as a word from the Lord, right? And that's, I think, how prophecy works. God speaks to someone a word of affirmation or encouragement of how he wants us to operate or to work, and then somebody shares that with someone else. So in this command to not disregard prophecy is quickly followed by verses 21 and 22 to test prophecies. You see, not everything spoken in God's name is true, and sometimes when God does speak, we get that message wrong or we get the timing wrong. And so the word test means to sift through something, to learn if it's genuine, to closely examine something to determine if it's real or if it's not. And so as we sift through a word from the Lord, a prophetic claim, we can find if something is real or genuine. And if it is, Paul says, hold on to it. If it's not, then let it go. We separate ourselves from that word. Paul doesn't tell us in this passage how to sift through a prophetic word, a, a word from the Lord. But the rest of the scriptures are pretty clear about two specific ways that we can test a word from the Lord. The primary means to test the prophetic word is scripture. Okay, If somebody offers you a word from the Lord, if it is counter, counter to what scripture says, it's not a word from the Lord. Okay, A prophecy, a word from the Lord, never goes against what God's word says or tells us. A second way we can test it is that literally prophetic activity should serve to strengthen, to encourage, to comfort, sometimes to build up God's people. If the effects of the prophecy are in the opposite, then there's a good reason to suspect it. So here's the thing. A healthy church is open to the leadership of the Holy Spirit. And then we get to the end of the, of the passage, and Paul offers this incredible prayer for the the church in Thessalonica. And the prayer is really focused on relying on God. And so look at verses 23 and 24. Paul says, May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. 
Speaking of following the leadership of the Holy Spirit, it leads Paul into the break into this beautiful prayer for the church. And Paul prays for their sanctification. That is, that they might be made into a holy, Christ-like people. And the sanctification process impacts every dimension of who we are. Paul says it. He says spirit, soul, and our physical bodies. So sanctification, which literally means, simply means, being made holy is pictured here as a process that God is performing in our lives. Sanctification isn't something we're doing as if we had the power or the resources to do it ourselves, but it is fundamentally a work of God in our life. And that doesn't mean that we're passive in the process, but it does, does mean that we can't make ourselves holy by ourselves. We find a note of assurance from Paul, though, that, that just as God has called Christians to faith in Jesus Christ, so also God will faithfully complete his work of making us holy. So if you're a follower of Christ here today, God has called you. Your faith in Jesus is evidence of that calling in your life. And if you've been called, then you you can be sure that God is going to accomplish his work of making you holy through and through, spirit, soul, and body. Just as surely as Jesus Christ is going to return again, so also we can be sure that we are going to be ready because God is faithfully sanctifying us through and through. So Paul talks about five bricks or five components to being a healthy church. It's not the only things, but these are five things he shares with this church and with our church. So the first is respect for leaders, our ministry to each other, keeping our focus on God, allowing the Holy Spirit to lead our church and relying on God. So I want to just wrap the message up by, by encouraging some possible action steps. Here are some things I want to ask you this morning. So first question, is there a leader in our church that God is prompting you to encourage or affirm? What is one small way you can show it? Write their name down. If God's putting somebody on your heart, write their name down, and then think about a way you can affirm them. A second question, is there someone who's timid or weak or disengaged that God would like you to encourage? Who is that person and what are you going to do to encourage them? And the third question, is there a word of encouragement that the Holy Spirit has laid on your heart to share with our leaders or maybe someone in our church? How will you share it? So I just encourage you, look those questions over, invite the Holy Spirit to lead you, and then take the next step to follow through. Here's the reality. The, the church is the hope of the world. Will we devote ourselves to making her be as healthy and as vibrant as possible? A place that is radically different than the rest of the world. A place that, where people will know that God is real because they will see our love and our care and our support for one another. Let's be the salt. Let's be the light that Christ is calling us to be. The world is so desperate for the hope that we have in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word that comes to us from Paul. The whole letter, the small letter, but what a powerful letter to encourage the church. That church, our church, to remain faithful, to know, God, that you are working in and, in and through our midst. And God, help us to be faithful. Help us to do what we can do, God, as you lead us to help strengthen, to help make our church as healthy as possible. God, we want our church to be a place of hope, a place that people come and 
And they sense your presence and your power at work in our midst, God. God, we're grateful that you work through timid and fragile human beings like us. And God, we're grateful that you are working to bring about a a maturity, a completeness uh, for us to be like Christ is. And that you promise us you will complete that work. God, we praise you. We give you thanks. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.